Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly biography show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. Connect with Carrie through her candid, funny, informative, and always encouraging weekly blog. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Sun Gray. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Christoph Keller III, an Episcopal priest and theologian who, through his ministry and life, has blended scholarly pursuits with innovative leadership. Some of you 60-year-olds may know Chris Keller as your student body president at Little Rock Central High School, where his claim to fame was initiating and organizing soccer in Central Arkansas. Thank you, Chris. My son, my youngest son, loves soccer. Like many of us, Dr. Keller's life has had many twists and turns. Following high school, he attended Amherst College to major in American Studies with a focus on Southern history and an emphasis on ethnicity and race. His honors thesis titled Busing included a chapter about his own experience at Central High School, an era known for racial diversity in the Little Rock Public Schools that was ignited by court-ordered busing. His paper awarded him the top prize for an American Studies thesis. College graduate Chris Keller was now a candidate at Harvard University in the History of American Civilization Ph.D. program. All appeared on track for the young Chris Keller, but the calling to become a priest began to creep into his subconscious. Acting on the call, he left Harvard and enrolled in the Episcopal Divinity School located just across Massachusetts Avenue from Harvard, where he would earn his Master's of Divinity. Upon returning to Little Rock, some of you got to know him in a rented movie theater space as the founding priest of a church that would later be called St. Margaret's Episcopal Church on Chennault Parkway in Little Rock, Arkansas. Through his leadership, St. Margaret's congregation grew to 500 people. They purchased land, built a sanctuary, and my favorite, the inception and construction of the ecumenical house of prayer, where people of all faiths may quietly join together in prayer and meditation. The ever-learning Dr. Keller was once again restless for more education. In 1999, he would leave St. Margaret's and move his family to New York. There he began his advanced study in theology. Dr. Keller holds a Doctor of Theology, a Ph.D., in Anglican studies focusing on theology and science. His dissertation, all right, are you all ready for this dissertation? This is a title, let me just tell you. Darwin's Science in Chalcedonian Imagination, colon, Barth, Double Agency and Theistic Evolution. This paper, or dissertation, explores and affirms compatibility between Christian faith and evolution. And I have listened to his talk on this. It's fascinating. Get your pen and paper ready for some pearls of wisdom. It is an honor to welcome to the table one of the smartest guys I've ever had the pleasure of knowing, my friend and my priest, Dr. Chris Keller III. Carrie? How are you doing? (laughs) You are so smart, and I am a high school graduate. Would you be kind to me today? I'm hoping you'll be kind to me. I think that the disadvantage is on this side of the table. (laughs) I do have the gift of gab, I'll have to say that. But you're a great listener, so here we go. You believe in Christianity and evolution. You believe in Christianity and gay marriage. And your family 
more specifically your father, has a long history of standing up for desegregation in the South. I want to talk about all of that. But first, one thing I did not mention in our bio that says a lot about you is your mother was a Murphy of Murphy Oil and that you have the where for all to do anything in the world you would like to do, and yet you chose a career of service to others. Why? Well, I was um, raised in faith uh, by my mother and my father, and um, given to understand that whatever it is that we do in life, uh, we do it as a steward of the gifts that God has given us. And that could be a career as a history professor, as I thought I would be, or a farmer, or a, somebody working in the oil industry, or uh, anywhere. So the question is, what talents do you have, and what do you believe that God is calling you to do? And it takes everybody a while to sort that out, and after I got it sorted out, I went to seminary. Was there one thing that happened that made you say, this is what i got to do? Or did it just start creeping at you? Uh, it started creeping on me. I was uh, in graduate school at Harvard, and uh, I would ride the subway to Cambridge from Boston, where we lived, and I just began to have a feeling that uh, I was being moved to become a priest, which I, by then I was 23 or 4 years old and um, ha- hadn't had that feeling before. I didn't think it was preposterous, but unless I felt I was called to do it, I wasn't going to volunteer. And uh, it just began to dawn on me that I was called. So it was not one thing that happened one day. Like some people say, I just had this one day, this one moment, and I thought this is what I need to do and this is what I need to change. So this was just an evolution of thought that kept nagging at you, I guess you'd say. It did, but it didn't take that long. I would say that it occurred over a period of about three months. I went from, oh, I, I wonder if I'm called to do this to waking up one morning and saying, I really believe I am called to do this. Boy, that's a gift right there, knowing what you want to do. So another thing I did not mention in your bio is that your father was the Episcopal Bishop of Arkansas during the time of desegregation, that he went to Mississippi, an all-white, to a church, an all-white church in Mississippi, and did what? Well, it was uh, early in the 60s, uh, and he was the uh, dean of St. Andrew's Cathedral in Jackson. It was the... um, the Sunday after Megar Evers was killed, who was the president of the Mississippi NAACP, I believe, at the time, and was one of the great leaders in the civil rights movement throughout the country at that time. And he was assassinated, I think, in his front yard in uh, Jackson. And um, surrounding that event, groups, uh, teams from the Southern, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, were attempting to integrate churches in the way that uh, Freedom Riders had integrated cap, uh, dime stores, Woolworths, and bus rides and everything. And um, the teams were being turned away at other churches. And they, uh, at St. Andrews, the St. Andrews knew they weren't going to turn them away. The, the, the group that came to St. Andrews was uh, four women. Uh, and um, they came to the, the front door and they were welcomed in and stayed for church, and when they uh, walked out, uh, one of them wrote later, she wrote a book about her about her life, Ann Moody, it's called Coming of Age in Mississippi, and she says that the minister, who was my father, met her at the door, and, uh, she's, and uh, he said, come again, and she said, and he said it as if he meant it, and I began to have a little hope. 
Isn't that a great story? Didn't he also make the front page of the newspaper? He was before? in the, the, the that story with a picture, a photograph of him and the women was on the front page of the New York Times. That is a strong image. Mm-hmm. So, how did your father end up becoming the bishop of Arkansas? Uh, well, in the Episcopal Church, we have elections, and uh, well, he went from Mississippi to Arkansas. He was nominated to be the bishop of, of Arkansas, and there was an election, and he was elected. And that's why he moved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How old were you? I was uh, just about to enter the seventh grade. What a weird time to move. It was. And then you ended up becoming the president of your class at Central High School. Well, uh, I was. my friend Carl Cross was the president of the class. I was the president of the student body. What's the difference? I didn't know that. Student body is everybody. The class is a class. Oh, I shows how much attention I was paying in high school. I didn't realize that. See, I told you not to make me look stupid today, and you didn't. You're, you don't even have to try. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did you decide soccer was the sport that you wanted to bring to Central Arkansas? Well, like most things that happened, it happened organically. There was actually a group of guys that I knew from Hall High School that were playing a pickup game kind of on a regular basis. And uh, I was with a group of people from Central uh, that summer that went on one of those six-week see-every-country-in-Europe trips with a bunch of high school teachers, which was the most sustained six weeks of fun in my entire life. And... um, and we st- so we started playing pickup games uh, over there, and when I we got back and I was in a position as a student body president to make a few things happen, and and I wrote a letter to the presidents of the other schools, uh, challenging them to form a team and with us to form a league, and uh, we did and started, and that was the beginning of organized school soccer in Little Rock, and it's it. Central's never stopped playing since. And the league you start in, in the league that you started is still the league. Well, they well play now in? I mean, since then it's been except you know it's part of just the sports association in Arkansas. It's, so it's much more formal and official. Our uniforms were very raggedy when we played. Boy, I mean, leadership is in your DNA. Um, I think this is a great place to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Chris Keller. We'll get Dr. Keller to give us his opinion on some hot topics facing Christians in the 21st century, like gay marriage, science and religion. And last, we'll find out about balancing pastoral care with the business of running a church. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. If you miss any part of this program, a podcast will be made available next week at flagandbanner.com. Lots of listening options. We'll be right back. Flagandbanner.com. You know, we have a YouTube channel with over 100 tutorials, decorating tips, interviews, lots more, too. Anytime you have a question about flags, we're the experts, flagandbanner.com and our YouTube channel. Also on our website, you can get directed to that YouTube channel to watch the videos of previous Up In Your Business shows. We've had lots of interesting guests, just like this week's, and you can re-watch and re-listen to them all at our YouTube channel for flagandbanner.com. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Dr. Chris Keller. It's fixing to get heated up in here. Let's start with gays in the church. I have many Christian friends who have had a hard time aligning gay marriage with their faith in Scripture. And I've heard you say you did, too, when you were young. Well, uh, well I think that uh, if you're 63 years old, as I am, then you grew up with... Uh, 
more or less the assumption that that uh, that gay life was um, um, was contrary to Christian faith and for our and the intentions that God has for our life, and it's taken um, a pretty big shakeup in the way that people think about the world and understand things for that change to have occurred in the church and in our society, and. Um, for as long as I've been a priest, it's been an issue that's been discussed and and on the table for conversation and potential change in the Episcopal Church. And um, so when we started, I, I would say I, I would describe myself as initially as an open-minded conservative on the issue. And uh, then I became, uh, after a sabbatical, I took to study it in more depth. Um, because I knew I was going to a national convention of the Episcopal Church where I was going to be on a committee and in a position to influence policy about it. I, I took three months to, to try to understand the science of it better, to understand the philosophy and the theology of it better, and to, and to wrestle with the, the question of Scripture and tradition in relation to a possible change. And um, I emerged from that with um, as a... a I moved from cautious, I mean, from open-minded conservative to cautious liberal. Um, so, you know, why is why is it that we could even consider a change like that? Um, that's a complex question of the interpretation of Scripture. But in general, I would say one of the things that I believe and was taught in my tradition about the Bible is that. Uh, when we read the Bible, we don't find there that God has intended that every question be settled in advance uh, for all time on matters of how human beings live in relation to each other. We see within the Bible, we see that the kind of human circumstances change, that social arrangements change, and policies change within the people of God. And we see that in the book of Acts, for example, what one a profound change was around the question of whether um, Christians would be uh, kind of constrained to live the same life with the same restrictions that the people of God in Israel had. And there was actually a church council in the 15th chapter of the uh, Acts of the Apostles where the leaders of the church got together and made a policy, which was a new policy on that question, uh, which tells me that God actually wants human beings, faithful human beings, to uh, to consider questions, uh, to deliberate about them, and that God has given us the authority to faithfully, with fear and trembling, to 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 decide on things like that to the best of our ability. And I've always believed that the question about uh, homosexuality in the church was that sort of question, and um, so then it began. It, then it becomes a question of what's what's good policy, what's right, what's fair, what's uh, what's going to do the most for human flourishing, which is ultimately what God wants from us. And uh, I eventually got came, it came down to me for the question after kind of sorting through it all, which was that I should love my neighbor as myself, including my gay neighbor. And what do I want for myself? I want um, faithfulness and love and marriage. And um, and I want my gay neighbor to have that too. And I'm I'd say now I'm not really even a cautious liberal about that. I've, I've, I'm I'm really happy about it. <laughs> uh, you've performed some gay marriages. I have, yeah. One recently. 
Uh, yeah. What was your favorite part you said in the in the? I'm actually I arrived late for that wedding. I'm sorry to say. You, that's not the only time I've seen you arrive late. <laughs> that's right. So tell me your favorite part that you wrote. My, the favorite? Well, I in my sermon that mm-hmm. I, I well. Um, let's see if I have to remember my own sermon. I know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really putting you on the I, spot. Well, I, I, I think the, my favorite line that I wrote in that sermon had to do with the fact that Melissa, so the, the, the two people that got married are Amber Carswell, who's a priest in our church, and Melissa Wilkinson. And uh, when Amber and Melissa met, Melissa, who's a professor of art at Arkansas State, wasn't involved in the church at all. Melissa had been interviewed somewhere else, and she'd said, religion's not on my radar. I said, little did she know that it was coming at her like a a stealth torpedo from a submarine. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. That was a good one. So there's lots of loves in the Bible. There's lots of, there's, I think there's, there's agape love. The the, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a a book called The Four Loves. Four Loves. Uh, They're uh, four Greek words for love. Agape, which is. Agape. Yeah. uh, pronounce it agape because you're smart well i don't know it's just the way i pronounce it. it's the right way i don't know go ahead i could be wrong no you're not the, um uh, it's uh that's the love of, of god for us that's unconditional love love divine all love's excelling there's eros which is romantic love that's the love that kind of pushes us around the room and makes us want to marry someone or love them there's philia which is friendship and storgi, which is uh, the love kind of within a family. It's the love that kind of nests a house, kind of the little give and take. What's that one called? Storgi. Never heard of that one. In, in English it, language, it would be S-T-O-R-G-E. Wow. So in Human Flourishing, you've, you've, you've come to decide that your neighbor, your gay neighbor, should have all of those. Mm-hmm. And that without being married, they would not have storgi. I don't. I think that, that those loves exist outside of the institution of marriage, and there, there are lots Heroes. of right. All well, all of them do, and um, so I don't think that that marriage is, is is a requisite condition for for those kinds of things. But the the kind of commitment that marriage represents uh, is in the. the one of the other things I said in that sermon is that the good marriage, the happy marriage, is consists of kept promises and answered prayers. So what happens in a marriage service is that people make promises uh, for unconditional love, for agape, and we pray to God in the same service that God will work in us and through us to help us answer those prayers. So happy marriages, kept promises, and answered prayers. And um, that is a unique relationship. I mean, it's unconditional. It's all in. And uh, there, are th- there, there, there are things that can happen in that relationship that, um, that can't happen outside of it. Because I think that if you've got that kind of a relationship, that really, by definition, is a marriage. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, I think that the expansion of that understanding within the church sacramentally is a sign of what God's love is like for us. Um, is an advance in the church. There's something you can live with somebody, but once you get married to them, there's some sort of shift in consciousness 
or unconsciousness that I don't understand or know why it is. But the day after you get married, it just feels different. And it just is different. I mean, you know, promises are real. And uh, marriage is a real bond. And it's it, it, it's as, you know, we know what a, the kinds of natural bonds that occur in families. And uh, marriage is a bond that strong. And not to mention that uh, now that gay marriage is recognized legally, uh, can't uh, this may be a question you don't an answer you don't have, but can't now uh, they're eligible for their partner's social security when the other one passes away, and they don't have to, and they automatically get the house. So they get just natural just natural citizenship rights now that they're married, which is something nobody really thinks about or talks about a lot to me. Is if you're not married legally to somebody. You don't get if you you don't get their uh, social security. You don't get their like if you were partners. You didn't get any of their social security when one of them passed away. Even if they were the breadwinner in the family, you have to buy your home mm-hmm. from them. You know all these citizen rights that we have for being a in a marriage didn't happen for gay partners. Well, I think that was a large part of the impetus for why the laws were changed and why the um, why the Supreme Court ruled that. That gay marriage was constitutional and tax benefits. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And or and, and sometimes somebody if somebody's sick in the hospital, whether you, you you have the the right to see them and to, to to hear what the doctors have to say about their condition and mm-hmm. to make decisions. For there was them. a lot of legal outside of the church. There were a lot of legal reasons that also make it, like you said, uh, makes those humans flourish, which is really what I think probably the biggest message that Jesus is saying. What do you think Jesus's biggest message is? That's a big question. What's Jesus' biggest message? Yes. I know um, the answer to this. I'm sure you do. <laughs> um, the way I normally think of it is what's God's message to us in and through okay. the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, I think that it's um, God's message to the world is this is who I am. Look at Jesus. This is who I am, God says. And you are my beloved. To, to all of humanity, that, that God, uh, there's a wonderful line in the novel Gilead by Marilyn Robinson where there's an, an old preacher uh, who has a very young son, and he says to the young son, you're gonna, you th-, he's writing a little memoir for his son to read later, and he says, you're going to think that you have to, in some way or another, earn my approval. And your mother's in my love for you. And he says, what you can't understand is that your existence is a delight to me. And uh, I'd say that that is God's message to humanity in Jesus Christ. I mean, it comes with a lot of other things like life after death with uh, uh, moral responsibility, uh, a requirement to, uh, to love our neighbors as ourselves. There's a lot of, there's a lot to do that comes with it. Um, but it's uh, it's not just about something to do. It's a message about who we are in, uh, in God's eyes. And that he loves us unconditionally. Yeah. What a nice thing to think about. All right, this is a great place to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Chris Keller. We'll get Dr. Keller's view on the compatibility between Christian faith and evolution. And if you were with me or remember in the intro, his Doctor of Theology dissertation was entitled Darwin's Science in Chalcedonian Imagination, colon, Barth, Double Agency and Theistic Evolution. 
Dr. Keller is a true scholar on this subject. You won't want to miss it. We were listening to you up in your business with Carrie McCoy. If you miss any part of this show, a podcast will be made available next week at flagandbanner.com's webpage. Flagandbanner.com, a resource for all questions about flag etiquette. Learn how American flags should be handled and displayed. How about boating flag etiquette? Learn the traditions and the etiquette for both boats and yachts. There's a calendar of events on holidays that are coming up that you can proudly fly a flag. And what do the different ways of folding a flag actually mean? Along with these handy tips, there's letter visibility charts, there's standard flag size documents, there's custom flag comparison charts. It's a real resource for displaying old glory. Please visit flagandbanner.com. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Dr. Chris Keller. Look, we've already got a phone call. All right. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy and Dr. Chris Keller. Have you got a, you got a question for my guest? I do, I do. Uh, I'm a member of the Methodist Church, and the Methodist Church is uh, going through uh, apostle split and the, uh, the church as a whole over the homosexual issue and, and gay, gay marriage and gay clergy and all that. Uh, and I'm not a theologian, although I can say that word. Uh, <laughs> oh. Sorry. That's all right. Um, but I've been told, and to others who are more learned than I am on this, that there's a scripture in Romans that pretty much says that uh, homosexuality is incompatible with God's word. I'd be interested to hear the, uh, the doctor, the good doctor's uh, view on that. Great question. Thanks for calling. There, there aren't that many places in the Bible that speak all that closely to the question of, of homosexuality, but there are a few. And, uh, and Paul, St. Paul does in a couple of places, including in the first chapter of Romans. And, um, and, the, and the things that he has to say about it are, uh, are negative, not positive. So, that for, so for those who um, are, are considering a, moving from open-minded conservative to cautious liberal or, or enthusiastic liberal, then Paul is somebody to be reckoned with. The... Um, what, what, there are two possible ways that one might move past what Paul has to say towards affirmation. Uh, and, and one is the, the, the question of context. Uh, so what Paul is talking about in the first chapter of Romans is that, that he, he's kind of – this is his entrance, his kind of – his introduction to this masterpiece uh, of theology and, and both pastoral theology and um, kind of absolute theology in, in Romans. And, he, and he's saying the introduction is, is that the world has gotten more and more estranged from God. Um, and the, the, the problem is kind of chasing after false gods instead of the true God. And, he's, and he, he cites as kind of an, an illustration of how kind of out of kilter things have gotten is that uh, is the, I, I think he's, talk, he, he's talking about women, for his example, have uh, become attracted to each other instead of men. And uh, so a question is, who is Paul thinking of when he's thinking about that? The question of context would say, uh, does he have in mind the kind of faithful relationship that we just celebrated at Trinity Cathedral the other day with our marriage? Or is, is, is he have, does he have in mind a, a, a kind of a more pers- promiscuous relationship that doesn't have the qualities of 
faithfulness and love that that, that we celebrate in marriage. And I, I think a, there's a pretty good argument to be made that, that that the kinds of homosexuality that Paul was familiar with are not the kind of faithful love that that we're celebrating and upholding in the church. So, and I, I think that that's there's a good case to be made about that. It's not an airtight case. I mean, and it's 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 possible for me to believe that that if you kind of put the question directly to Paul back in the first century, did you, uh, you know, what do you think about gay marriage? He might have said, well, I'm against it. It's possible that he would say that. I don't know that. Uh, so the other question about Paul is, is what St. Paul says, who is one of the most important witnesses to the, the gospel that we have, is, is his word final and definitive on every question? And, uh, and so is Paul infallible for all times on every question that he speaks to and he speaks to a lot of questions some of them big some of them small like he says things like that women should be silent in church and uh, i was trained in christian christian theology by carl bard among all, above all others uh, uh, carrie's mentioned him he's in my dissertation and bart believed that 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 God's word comes to us in the Bible through through the Bible through human beings that are fallible. I mean, they're they're fully human, which means that they're fallible. They're not perfect. They don't know everything, and so it's possible for us to believe faithfully that that uh, we might disagree with Saint Paul on some questions, like whether women should be silent in church. And I think it's at least theoretically possible for us to to take a different opinion than he did on the question of gay marriage. That's a uh, so. I, I approach it that way. Uh, I think that if Paul were alive today, he would say he would pro- he would think differently about it than he did then, because we know things now that we didn't know then, and we all are all creatures of our historical context, and the biblical writers were too. Well, that was a good answer, and I'm so glad the caller uh, called and asked that question because it is scripture, and you just talked about how you can uh, come to terms with scripture. And still be um, faithful in your in your um, in your faith, and and love your gay neighbor like you said. All right, let's talk about you're a doctor of theology, which is a THD. I didn't realize that. Uh, and your dissertation, I just like saying this because I can say this: Darwin Science in Chalcedonian Imagination: colon, Barth Double Agency in Theistic Evolution. This explores and affirms the compatibility between Christian faith and evolution. What a difficult subject. What made you decide to take this subject on? And why do you think everybody needs to hear your opinion, really? And why did you think it was so worth saying? I mean, why did you want to take it on and write it down? Well, when I went to graduate school to get a doctorate, I I did not have in mind that I was going to be focusing on theology and science. That was a little bit of an accident. It just so happened that the theologian where I went was a specialist in that, and so I, I, I got interested enough to, to begin to look into it. And then, when it came time to write a dissertation, I thought, you know, I'm going to be spending the next five years of my life studying a problem, and I want it to be a problem that's not just interesting to me or, and to a few other scholars, but it's actually something that's important to the church and world. And so. Uh, this was around the time of the controversy about uh, intelligent design theory and whether that could be taught in schools or should be taught in schools under the Constitution. And um, 
in the Episcopal Church, I was never raised to believe that there was an inherent conflict between uh, faith in Christ and evolution. Um, that's our tradition has always been that that theology and science are compatible in that way. But I didn't feel like that as much had been done to explain that and develop it and really justify that belief as needed to be done. And so I thought, well, okay, there's something for me to spend some time on for five years. So let's hear what you came up with. Well, how do they go together? The, um, you know, the apparent contradiction, you know, kind of to start with the problem, it would, would be that the, um, you know, the, the book of Genesis describes a, a kind of an instantaneous, instantaneous creation of human beings and the creation of the world in six days. And so evolution describes, a, a, well, it assumes that the, the world is hundreds of millions of years old, and we now know it's even older than that. Uh, the universe is about 14 billion years old. And... Um, and it describes that uh, human beings, rather than being created in a stroke, in a miraculous instant, uh, evolved along with other life forms from simpler life forms through a process that Darwin described as uh, natural selection. And um, so you have a question of time, and uh, you, there's some other problems and that there's a fair amount of uh, roughness and randomness in the evolutionary process. Um, so the reason why that is why those two things are compatible, I mean, I'll start with the biblical question. St. Augustine, long before Darwin in the fourth century, did a study of Genesis that led him to suspect that perhaps the best interpretation of the book of Genesis was not a literal one. For example, he noticed that um, in the, the unfolding of the, of the days of creation, that the sun and the stars are created on the fourth day. Well, St. Augustine knew that a day consists of a revolution of the earth in relation to the sun, and that uh, so the, the, a day did not literally exist until day four, but that's an apparent contradiction. And he knew that the biblical writers knew that too. And that led him to suggest that perhaps an alternative explanation, you know, a better interpretation of Genesis might be that this is a poetry that is describing something else that's truthful and important about God in relation to the world and God's purposes in creating the world and the orderly orderliness and goodness of the world. Um, and so, uh, by the way, Augustine also believed that uh, he, he noticed that even as big as Noah's Ark was, it was not big enough to hold two of everything that we see in the world. And so he suggested, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that, uh, that God created the, the kind of the, the principles and the potentiality of creatures uh, and that they unfolded over time with the assistance of God's creature time. And so Christians had, for a long time, entertained possibilities other than a literal interpretation of Genesis. Um, the, so then the question is, well, you know, the people that suspect that there's not a compatibility between Christianity and science are not only uh, biblical literalists on the Christian side. There are pretty aggressive scientists on the evolutionary side that have said, well, yeah, the conservative Christians are right, they're not compatible, and that therefore, since Darwin is right, Christianity is wrong. I mean, that's Richard Dawkins sells a lot of books saying that. Um, and um, 
so the problem, the reason that's not the case, is that the is that Saint Thomas Aquinas and other great theologians have understood that God is not a thing in the world that makes other things happen in the way that other things in the world make things happen. So God is the creator of the world, and so. And, and the, 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 create, the, the, the kind of creation that God does in the world is, by analogy, like the creation that an author like J.K. Rowling does in creation of the world, Harry Potter. So if you read the Harry Potter series, you don't ever see any point within the book where you would say, well, oh, that was J.K. Rowling that did that, not Ron Weasley. Uh, J.K. Rowling is in the whole of it. There's nothing that happens in a Harry Potter book that doesn't happen because J.K. Rowling makes it happen in a sense, while within the, within the covers of the book, things happen with their own integrity. Well, Aquinas knew that that's what we mean when we say that God is the creator of the world, that things, things can happen kind of on their own with full explanations by science, uh, and, uh, and yet God is intimate to the things as they happen. And that, that, that and they wouldn't happen without God, and ultimately they only happen because God either wants them to or permits them to. And uh, so that's what Chalcedonian imagination is, understands that the that the that the, the creative process has its own integrity, while also being a, a, a vehicle and an instrument for God's will. I hope people had their pen and paper for that because I listen to him talk and I think, oh, I can say that again and I can never say it again. I try to explain it to people. So you are saying that God is the umbrella of the world and that all of science can happen under God's umbrella. Uh, uh, That's not my metaphor. It's yours and I think it's a great one. Well, there you go. Um, What is it about being a priest you find rewarding? Uh, what I uh, tell people that are thinking that they might be called to be a priest is that you need to understand that, number one, that it is immensely fulfilling. You get to do things in people's life that uh, you, you have a privilege of access to people in their life at certain moments that no one else has. It's immensely fulfilling. It is never boring, and it is a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> Uh, but it's the it, it, it's the first part that is uh, what makes it uh, me glad that I do it. So that kind of leads into uh, the balancing of the church as a business, the pastoring to your congregation, the outreach program, the preparing your sermons. I mean, most people come to church for the services, but that's only a part of what you do. It roughly divides out into thirds for me, and I think probably generally this is true, that a third of my life, my time in ministry is spent in the kind of the creative process, preaching the gospel, preparing sermons, teaching the faith, preparing classes. That's a third. Uh, a third of it is in pastoral ministry, uh, you know, visiting sick folks, uh, going to see people when they're about to die, preparing funerals. There's a lot of pastoral work one-on-one and with groups. 
and then about a third of it is running an organization. And at Trinity, it's a that's a it's a pretty complex organization. It's a big job, just kind of being pulling the levers and paying the bills and all of that. I mean, there's hiring and firing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's training, just like every business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you find this time to to do, like you said, all that other stuff. Um, which one do you like the best? I guess I already know that. You already answered that, didn't you? I like the creative part, and I like the pastoral part. People don't think business is creative, but it's very creative. Well, no, absolutely it is. My, uh, to quote my father, he used to tell young priests who would say, well, I, I don't do administration. He'd say, well, administration is not one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but it's the delivery system for the gifts, and so you better pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got you know you hate to think about it, but but a church has to make money or it can't stay in business. Well, it, it doesn't have to make it, but it can't lose it. It can't lose it. There <laughs> you go. So, what's it all about? What is it all about? If you had one thing you'd like to tell our listeners, that's a big question. What would it be? Well, you know, we go through life, and there's so much to do. There's a lot to enjoy. Uh, we we prosper, we struggle, and so forth and so on. And, and, and we're just, we're in what Flannery O'Connor called the habit of being, which means that we, uh, well, one of the things it means is that we just take it all for granted, as, as though it weren't ex- an extraordinary fact that we, that we exist. And not only do we exist, we exist with, as, as, as creatures that can think and can choose. We get, we can, we get to decide whether we're going to go through that door or the other one, and we, and, and, and to, we get to determine who we are, and um, and uh, we shouldn't take that for granted, and uh, we shouldn't let ourselves be conned into thinking that we're not important, and in fact, and that that we're not immensely valuable we are that i mean the the value on this life is that each and every person no matter how ordinary they think they are is of is 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 a remarkable thing in the universe The, the scientists will say that as far as we know the human brain is the most complex and wonderful piece of equipment in the entire universe and we that's standard issue stuff for being a human being and uh, I mean, and we know that without religion, mm-hmm. and the gospel puts an even higher value on that, and, and says that, that, that this combination of qualities that we have—this ability to think and to feel and to love and to love—is um, means that we are made in the image of God. We are no less than that, and um, being alive and in the world is a remarkable and wonderful thing. It comes with great responsibility, and at the end of the day, the news about it is all good. How much free will do we have? Uh, d- depends on the day. We can give up some of our free will, and addiction is uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, a way that a lot of times we can we can lose the free will that we've been given. It's certainly not unlimited free will. In any circumstance, we only have a few choices that are that we kind of have the capacity to make. Uh, but any, an ounce of free will can move the world. I got to know Dr. Keller when he was called to be the dean of Trinity Episcopal Church in downtown Little Rock. Since his retirement from that job, in true Chris Keller mania, if you will, he has written an important book titled Getting On Toward Home. 
a collection of 12 of his, I suppose, favorite funeral sermons. I'm glad you chose a simpler title for your book, Getting On Toward Hope, than your earlier writing than your earlier writings, Darwin's Science and Chalcedonian Imagination, Barth Double Agency and Theistic Evolution. Remind me to never read that paper. <laughs> <laughs> In reading your book, your father's eulogy and your mother's homily were both included. And there's a difference. Tell us what the difference between a eulogy and a homily is. A eulogy is uh the Greek root is essentially it means it's praise, and it's so a, a eulogy, which is a good thing, is uh, is a kind of a parting message of praise for the person who's deceased, and um, the homily is a sermon. It's a short sermon where the point is to draw the person's life into um, the understanding of that person's life that we have in our through our faith. So you're seeing the person in light of the of the larger truth about the world and God. And so the homily is supposed to preach. I got you. That's why we call sermons homilies. Yeah. And a eulogy is about celebrating, praising just that person pretty right. much. You're yeah. not trying to teach them something about the Bible while you're giving them a eulogy. Right. And kind of a brief history of speaking at funerals in the Episcopal Church. When I was born, the practice was nothing was said about the person who had died. Really, the basis for it, in a way, is beautiful, which is that we're all equal in the eyes of God, and none of us really can accurately summarize another person. That's for God to know and for us to find out. And so, whether you're the Queen of England or the person that sweeps the floor in in the pub down the street, you're treated the same at a funeral. Now, theoretically, that was the way it was, and so a parish priest generally just didn't preach at at, uh, funeral services. And neither did any member of their family. That was kind of hard for people to bear. And so by the, just about the time that I became a priest, there was a new prayer book, and it, it actually offered an opportunity for the first time for there to be a homily at a funeral service. And um, so people kind of had to figure out how to use that time. A lot of times I've noticed they tended to be almost impersonal. I mean, the preacher would preach the resurrection it seemed to me that you always needed to bring the person's life into I, that. Yeah, I don't like funerals like that. They yeah. did that for my grandmother's funeral, and I was like, well, we didn't even talk about grandma. Yeah, and I, I think that pastorally, even when I was young, I recognized that there needs it needs to be more personal than that. I think probably as a reaction to that, people more and more started, in addition to having sermons, would have kind of tributes from family members at services to, to, to make it personal. And I think that's... I've heard some really good ones. More often, in my experience, I've not. Uh, if somebody asks when we have a member of our family do a tribute, the answer has always been yes, just one, please. So mm-hmm. the service isn't too long. Mm-hmm. But more often, they don't. And so I get people that, even if I don't know the person that I'm about to talk about, I'll, I'll get to know them in, about, in the three days before the service. Oh, is that how long it takes? Three yeah. days of interviewing the family? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it takes three days to actually have the service. And so I'll get the people in the family to talk to me about their loved one. And then I'll give their loved one back to them and wrapped up in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Your book is called getting on toward home. Why that title? And why was this book important for you to write? Well, I just retired. And so all my life, I had uh, thought that at some point, as a scholar, I should 
write a book and publish. You know, that's kind of part of the job, and I, I just had never gotten around to it. So book writing was on my agenda for retirement and kind of intuitively started getting drawn to the idea of, of, of bringing together some funeral sermons. One of my favorite books that I've read in the last 10 years is by Reinhold Niebuhr. It's, it's about the progressive view of history. I've gotten the title of the book, but he says that there are three things that the progressive movement will never be able to make go away. And one of them is that sex is important to human beings. And another is that race is important to human beings. And the other is that death is important to human beings. So death is important to human beings and it's important in Christian faith. What Christianity has to say about death is important. And I've said a lot about it because I've done a lot of sermons when people have died. And so I got, got drawn with that. And so, and I decided I didn't want it to be a big book. I wanted it to be a small one because there's only so many sermons at funerals that I think anybody ought to ever have to consider reading. And so let's make it small. And th- these aren't necessarily the ones that I think are my best or my favorites. I wondered. I, it was sort of like putting together a jigsaw puzzle where one thing would lead to another. And I would say, oh, I thought yeah, this kind of connects with something I said about that and another and I, I just started piecing them together ultimately i just kind of looked at it uh, one day i arrived at the yeah, well these are the 12 and it's one thing to kind of hold a room in the moment and it's another thing to hold a room in the pages of a book and so it's got to be sharper it's got to be better written so i had to rewrite them all i, re- and I, I rewrote them as many times for the book as i'd rewritten them in drafts to do the sermon so it's usually five drafts for a sermon, and so it's probably 10 or 15 for the book. If anybody wants to dig more into your, to your um, opinions about religion in the 21st century, you've got sermons galore on the website. It's under worship. So you go to trinitylittlerock.org, and then his sermons are written out for you to read under worship services. And then you can scroll through the services and you can find the ones that Chris Keller um, preached on. You do have a lot to say, and people do love to hear what you have to say. It's well written. I have a gift for you. It's Flags. <laughs> Imagine that. It's a desk set, oh. U.S., Arkansas, and the Episcopal Church. Do you have a small Episcopal Church flag? I don't. I don't have a small Arkansas or American flag either. You're going to love that. I love it already. There you go. If you could tell, ask yourself a question. Let me see how I, let me see how I phrase this exactly, because we have just a few seconds left, and this is always a great one. If you could ask your, tell yourself of twenty years ago something, what would it be? Um, that, well, I'll tell you the thing that occurred to me. <laughs> uh oh. Uh, the razor Razorback football's in for a rough ride. <laughs> <laughs> You don't think he's funny, but he's funny. (laughs) All right. Thank you for spending time with me. And if you think this program's been about you, you're right. But it's also been for me. Thank you for letting me fulfill my destiny. My hope today is that you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening. And that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy. I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guests. 
All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.